Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Quality Investing Podcast. My name is Jake Barfield, and I run Asheville Capital Management. Each episode of the Quality Investing Podcast will profile a business or business model that I have personally researched. The first half will be dedicated to providing fundamental research and analysis of the unique ways in which that company produces value for its customers and the potential for long-term competitive advantages. The second half of the episode will include a discussion with an expert on that business or business model. I want to be clear before we begin the show that this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. I strongly suggest that you perform your own research or allocate your investment dollars to a professional advisor. Today's episode is sponsored by Stream by AlphaSense. Stream is an on-demand library of over 25,000 expert interview transcripts. Stream eliminates the time, money, and hassle that comes with conducting expert calls and interviews. My research strategy that I employ at Asheville Capital is focused on finding key qualitative data points that point to a business being competitively advantaged or not. Stream helps me execute this strategy in a practical way because they either already have dozens of calls on the company that interests me, or they are able to quickly source numerous experts for me that are well-qualified to answer my questions. In the six months that I've been using Stream, it has often served as a substitute for most of the podcasts that I used to listen to. The reason is because there seem to be more nuggets of helpful information in each of these calls that help me to better understand the topic or company that I'm interested in at that time. If you have conducted expert calls in the past and are looking for ways to better allocate your time and energy, then Stream might be a helpful addition to your toolkit. HashiCorp is an American software company that provides open source tools that enable organizations to provision, secure, and run any infrastructure for any application. Its product portfolio includes revenue generative tools such as Terraform, Vault, and Console, as well as a handful of other tools that are in various stages of development. For the purposes of this discussion, we will focus on the three revenue generative tools, Terraform, Vault, and Console, which combined will produce more than $450 million of revenue this year. To understand the overarching problem, let's first examine the customer base. There are generally two types of software developer, the front end and the back end. Occasionally, you will come across a full stack developer but most tend to bifurcate into a front or back-end role. Front-end developers tend to focus on application building and data analysis. These developers directly work with applications that both consume and produce data. Alternately, back-end developers build and maintain the technology that enable the user-facing side of applications to exist in the first place. HashiCorp's tools solve problems specifically for the back-end developer. HashiCorp enables the backend developer to build and secure infrastructure within a cloud-based environment. In the old days, when everybody's IT infrastructure was on-premise, you would typically have to perform several tasks to get a new server up and running. First, you would need to provision that infrastructure, meaning that you would have to manually configure the physical hardware. Then you would need to install and set up all of the software needed to run that server, Then you would have to connect it to the network, ensure that all servers could still communicate with each other, and then secure everything. This process is manually intensive and is prone to error. As organizations move their infrastructure over to the cloud, these processes still have to occur, except now with the cloud, the entire architecture is moved out of the IT data room and into the cloud, which distributes data across multiple geographically dispersed data servers. Again, These tasks such as provisioning, securing, and networking still have to occur. 
but the ways in which they are performed are vastly different. Not only are they performed digitally now, but they have also grown in complexity and in the frequency with which they are performed. HashiCorp's three core revenue generative tools address these processes of provisioning, securing, and networking. Terraform handles infrastructure provisioning. Vault autonomously validates and authorizes users, machines, and applications before providing them access to secrets. Console is HashiCorp's service networking solution. Terraform is HashiCorp's most widely adopted tool. Today, it is considered the standard for a process called infrastructure as code. Infrastructure as code is a way to manage and provision infrastructure using code rather than by using manual processes. This means that instead of configuring hardware and software, you can use code to automate the process. This makes it easier to manage large-scale infrastructure because you can use version control to track changes and collaborate with others. Additionally, because your infrastructure is now defined as code, it is easier to replicate and automate the provisioning of new environments. Terraform is widely considered to be the gold standard tool among enterprises for executing this process of infrastructure as code. Since its launch in 2014, Terraform has been downloaded more than 1 billion times and is used by more than 13,000 enterprises worldwide. Companies pay for the enterprise version of Terraform because it provides access to a number of additional features that are not available in the open source version. Integrated governance, policy enforcement, and the ability for concurrent runs are all important features for organizations that need a centralized platform for securely collaborating on infrastructure and ensuring compliance across teams. Terraform technically has competitors, but HashiCorp salespeople rarely go head-to-head with any of them because Terraform is so widely adopted in the open source that by the time a customer is willing to pay, Terraform is already deeply integrated into that enterprise's workflows. The open source adoption and community around HashiCorp is a recurring theme across all of HashiCorp's tools, and it's primary competitive advantage that makes the company's position defensible. There is no exact figure for how much revenue Terraform generates, as the company does not publicly disclose this information. However, it is estimated that Terraform generates more than $150 million of revenue. Vault is HashiCorp's second most popular tool. While it has not achieved the same level of adoption as Terraform has, it has generated the vast majority of HashiCorp's revenues. Vault is a tool for securely storing, managing, and distributing sensitive data and credentials. An oversimplified description for Vault would be calling it a secret keeper. In reality, Vault does much more than just secure secrets. It also offers features such as audit logging and identity-based access controls. Vault is used primarily for allowing organizations to securely manage and share data across multiple users and services. Enterprises pay for Vault because it offers a number of benefits and features that make it easier to manage secrets at scale. Vault Enterprise allows you to rotate secrets automatically, enforce policies for secret management, control and audit access, and integrate with external authentication systems. In fact, a key reason why people use both Vault and Terraform is because they have an extraordinary number of integrations with other infrastructure tools, cloud providers, databases, and applications. Vault, like Terraform, has few competitors when it comes to the enterprise. There are some companies that do basic secret store, but very few have automated away complexity to the extent that Vault has. And because it is the most widely adopted secret store in the open source community, it advances at a faster pace than competitors and has more integrations by a large margin. When customers decide to pay for Vault, 
There is rarely a competitive process because Vault is already integrated with that system's infrastructure. Despite not being as widely adopted as Terraform, Vault is still the clear leader in its industry. It monetizes easier, primarily because it is a security-based tool. Security teams are very quick to pay for a tool in order to access richer features that allow them to secure their operations better. HashiCorp is going to generate close to $450 million of revenue this year, and Vault is going to account for the majority. The last product that we will discuss is Console. Console is a service discovery and configuration tool. It provides a decentralized service registry. Service discovery is a process in which an application or a system can detect, register, and deregister other services on a network. Console is used to facilitate communication between services and to enable applications to scale and adapt quickly to changing conditions. Similarly to Terraform and Vault, customers pay for Console in order to access additional features and capabilities that are not available in the open source. Console generates the least amount of revenue relative to Terraform and Vault, but is also much earlier in its adoption curve. Terraform and Vault generate the large majority of the revenues and are growing at a healthy rate, but Console holds the greatest opportunity for revenues into the future. Console's market is estimated by HashiCorp to be $31 billion, or roughly equivalent to the sum of the market sizes for both Terraform and Vault. Console has one main competitor, That is a product called Istio, which is developed by Google. They are very similar in that they are both service discovery and configuration tools. The key similarity is that both tools are open source and have fairly large communities, making it unclear as to which service wins out in the long run. Right now, because the market is so nascent, it seems that console has a long runway for growth. And in the occasional instances in which console and Istio have had to go head-to-head for a customer... Console has frequently won those deals, according to a number of former HashiCorp salespeople that I've spoken with. HashiCorp serves the backend developer by making it super simple for them to grab one of their tools from GitHub and get off and running at the very beginning of the cloud adoption process. HashiCorp CEO David McJanet likes to describe this first early step as phase one of a company's cloud adoption process. Usually when a company begins its migration towards the cloud, it starts with a single new application. A developer within a company wants to build a new application. Instead of using the existing on-premise infrastructure, they will open up an AWS account and probably grab Terraform from GitHub to help them provision the infrastructure. It doesn't always work this way, but in most cases, Terraform is the first product that a developer gets accustomed with from the HashiCorp tool build. This first phase of cloud adoption is a phase in which organizations are experimenting with the cloud. Within the enterprise, it is usually a free-for-all of developers grabbing tools from the open source and using them to solve their own unique problems within an organization. In this phase, there is typically very little oversight and effectively no standardization of best practices within companies. This phase one represents the widest part of the HashiCorp funnel. To give you a sense for the scale that potential customers are entering the funnel at, HashiCorp's open source tools were downloaded more than 250 million times in the last year alone. More than 12,000 organizations around the world utilize HashiCorp in the open source today, and they can accurately be described as being in this phase one stage that I'm describing. Phase two begins when a company decides to centralize. Enterprises will typically form a cloud platform team, which is basically a group of people who are tasked with consolidating all of the open source tools that are currently in use. Their goal 
is to build a cohesive and more secure infrastructure. This cloud platform team is HashiCorp's core customer. Most companies that HashiCorp engages tend to be between phase one and phase two of their cloud adoption journey. HashiCorp has intentionally designed its free open source versions of its products to solve problems for developers who are in that first phase of the cloud adoption journey and who may not necessarily need to pay for the premium features. Likewise, they have designed the proprietary versions of their products to solve problems for customers who are in the second phase of their cloud adoption journey. This freemium business model allows HashiCorp to gain widespread adoption among the developer community, and it allows for a gradual monetization model without upsetting its developers who have helped them achieve the widespread adoption in the first place. It is a very attractive product-led growth model that results in businesses paying for enterprise-grade features and also allowing developers to still get a lot of use out of it in the free tier. Another key benefit to the open source is that these developers ultimately contribute back to the product because they can contribute bits of code that help to make it better for their particular use cases and for others. This results in outsourced R&D to a limited extent, but more importantly, it results in a product that gets better at a much faster rate than an internally developed proprietary product can hope to advance at. This community is a key competitive advantage that is common for open source companies like HashiCorp, Elastic, Confluent, and others. When it comes to monetization, HashiCorp's tools are tethered to usage, which helps them to grow over time with their customers. Customers who decide to begin paying for services have the option of buying a subscription to a self-managed offering, or they can buy a fully managed subscription via the HashiCorp cloud platform. In both cases, customers pay HashiCorp based mostly on the degree to which they are using the product. HashiCorp cites several examples of customers who began by paying for a single solution with a low dollar value, and then expanding both the number of products that they used and the degree to which they used them. In their most recent earnings presentation, HashiCorp cites an example of a large financial services company which started by using open source tools in 2015 and only began to pay for Terraform in 2019. The initial contract size was for $245,000. Six months later, the company added Vault and increased the total contract size to $1.3 million. One year later, that amount grew to $1.8 million. One year after that, it grew to $4.8 million. Today, this customer has now added Console to their tech stack, and they pay HashiCorp more than $10 million in annual recurring subscription revenues. Annual recurring revenues with this customer grew more than 40x in only four years. This particular example represents a relative outlier among HashiCorp's customer base. Only a few customers pay HashiCorp more than $10 million per year, but the overall trend of annual expansion is similar across the entire customer base. HashiCorp has posted revenue retention rates of greater than 130% in each quarter since their IPO in 2021. Expansion is HashiCorp's easiest lever for continued growth. Once an enterprise becomes a paying customer, there are numerous paths by which a company might travel to increase its usage. HashiCorp is an effective bridge between legacy on-premise infrastructure and cloud infrastructure. As organizations grow in their cloud usage, they grow in their usage of HashiCorp. Similarly, customers often standardize around these tools and grow the number of teams across the organization that utilize them. Lastly, an enterprise who begins to pay with Terraform will very often expand to also use Vault or Console. Terraform, Vault, and Console all operate standalone but they also interface very well with each other and combined 
They allow for the effective management of infrastructure across all cloud environments. A former salesperson that I spoke to told me that expansion was never the primary challenge. It was way harder to get a customer to that first $50,000 contract than it was to get them from $50,000 to $200,000. In fact, it was almost an inevitability if it was an enterprise that once a customer began to pay for the first $50,000 that they would eventually get the $200,000. HashiCorp probably wouldn't articulate it this way, but it is usually a one-way door once a customer begins to pay for them. Switch costs are enormous and there are very few viable alternatives, especially once you start using enterprise features. The real challenge is never in getting a customer to expand, but rather in getting them to pay in the first place. The primary challenge that HashiCorp salespeople face is the problem of budgeting. Every enterprise in the world has a budget for databases right now. Oracle occupies a line item within almost every company's expense ledger, and conversations begin and end with the CTO once a year where they negotiate how much they are going to pay annually. HashiCorp does not have that privilege yet. Although most enterprises in the world utilize HashiCorp's products, they are mostly non-paying users. There is no line item within their budget for any of their tools yet. Salespeople have to spend their time trying to convince these organizations of the value associated with paying for the enterprise features. This is a common challenge for open source companies, and sales cycles can be long, but they are shortened by the fact that there is usually a groundswell of support within the developer ranks for the open source solution, and the sales process is much more collaborative rather than combative. A common point of criticism when it comes to HashiCorp is the lack of profitability and the heavy investment particularly in sales and marketing. This criticism is especially pronounced in the public equity universe, where growth is significantly discounted today in favor of cash flow positive, steady-state business models. This year, HashiCorp will spend more than $350 million in sales and marketing expenses in order to generate approximately $464 million in revenues, an incremental increase of $144 million from the year prior. The quick napkin math suggests that it will take HashiCorp approximately two and a half years to recoup that investment. Yet, the unit economics begin to make sense when you consider the expansion commentary that I just outlined. It is much more difficult and costly for HashiCorp to acquire that first contract with a customer, and then expansion inevitably follows and is cost-effective. High retention and expansion rates are the key to understanding how HashiCorp's unit economics make sense. If you take the incremental revenue increase that HashiCorp reports each quarter, and then you divide it by three, you will get the monthly recurring revenue that was added to the business in that quarter. If you divide this monthly ARR by the sales and marketing expense incurred in that quarter, then you can calculate a rough estimate of the months to payback. HashiCorp's payback rate is approximately 21 months, which is right around average when compared to most software companies. Yet, This doesn't factor HashiCorp's dollar-based net retention rates, which are in excess of 130%. A customer paying HashiCorp $10,000 per month will on average be paying $13,000 per month one year later, and $17,000 per month the year after that. The math begins to make sense when you realize that HashiCorp paid on average less than $20,000 for that customer. Once you factor in net expansion, payback rates begin to look well above average relative to the average software company. Further comfort can be gained by the fact that HashiCorp has a fortress balance sheet with nearly $1.3 billion of cash and equivalents and more than 10 years of runway based on existing cash outflows.
zooming out now and thinking big picture, in Dave McJanet's words, HashiCorp has always been aligned around this singular idea of enabling the cloud operating model. In the last six years, total spend on the cloud has grown from $15 billion to more than $180 billion, and by most estimates, is still in the very early innings. The non-obvious factor that took me a while to understand was an appreciation of just how fundamental HashiCorp's tools are to most of their customers' cloud programs. Numerous discussions with customers have made this totally clear to me, that HashiCorp abstracts an enormous degree of complexity away from the developer's day-to-day operations, and in the process, becomes a key cog in the enterprise's infrastructure operations. HashiCorp's tools become key workflows that are both mission-critical and which deliver beneficial cost savings to the customer in the form of cloud cost optimization. Conversations with customers and with former HashiCorp salespeople have confirmed these facts. Customers rarely switch and much more frequently increase their annual spend with HashiCorp to the tune of about 30% more each year. HashiCorp's target market is a large-scale enterprise. The Fortune 500 and the Global 2000 is the core addressable market. To that end, HashiCorp currently counts approximately 200 of the Fortune 500 as current customers and about 450 of the Global 2000 as customers. Importantly, anecdotal evidence seems to suggest that HashiCorp's tools are used heavily by these non-paying enterprises in the open source. And that positions HashiCorp uniquely to convert these open source users to paying customers in the future. HashiCorp's customer base tends to be top-heavy. While HashiCorp counts more than 3,500 paying customers, only around 700 of them produce nearly 90% of total revenues. HashiCorp counts these customers as those with more than $100,000 in annual recurring revenue. The average annual spend among this enterprise customer base is $515,000. Although the distribution is wide, with some customers paying as much as $10 million or more to HashiCorp per year, and some who have just barely crossed that threshold beyond $100,000 in total ARR. Long-term, it is critical for HashiCorp to convert these enterprises that use their technology in the open source to paying customers. A large part of this is going to come naturally as these companies mature in their cloud adoption journey. Another part of it is going to be dependent on HashiCorp investing heavily into building up its sales and marketing teams to go after these companies and to try to shorten the length of time that a company might otherwise wait to move towards the enterprise versions. Additionally, HashiCorp has invested heavily in creating cloud-native versions of each of their products. The combined product is called the HashiCorp Cloud Platform, or HCP for short. HCP has very quickly grown revenues from effectively nothing two years ago to more than $40 million of ARR today and makes up nearly 10% of revenues. HashiCorp is not profitable today. As previously mentioned, They have spent a lot of money in the last year investing in building up their sales force and in creating the cloud platform. These losses have been a conscious decision made by David McJanet and Navam Walihinda, the CEO and CFO. They have articulated this as an investment period in which expenses would outpace revenue for the year and begin to decline as a percent of total sales beginning in Q4 of this year. The basis for this decision is because of the large market opportunity that is ahead of HashiCorp today and their unique position to convert their open source user base. Coming out of this investment period, HashiCorp has indicated to investors an expectation for operating leverage in the years that follow. In a current market of turbulence where public equity investors seemingly prefer cash flow generative businesses over cash flow negative businesses, 
I'm glad to see that the management team continues to recognize that the highest rate of return for the cash that sits on their balance sheet is into research and development and in customer acquisition activities. If we think about businesses as the sum of their discounted future cash flows, HashiCorp has a unique opportunity ahead of itself to deploy capital into this market in order to produce value for the ecosystem, both open source and proprietary, and to convert its enterprise user base. If HashiCorp is going to maximize its free cash flows five, 10, or even 15 years into the future, it is going to come from the disciplined allocation of capital into this market today in order for its attractive unit economics to bear fruit and reveal their underlying per-customer profitability in the years that follow. My current confidence in HashiCorp's ability to grow with profitable unit economics stems from numerous calls with customers and former employees. Stream, our sponsor for this episode, deserves credit because I have sourced a number of data points from the use of their database of experts. Confidence also comes from having read and listened to nearly everything that David McJanet and Armand Dadgar have said publicly in the last four years. In summary, HashiCorp appears to be a uniquely advantaged business model with an attractive position to grow its customer base capital efficiently and to generate high incremental returns on investment. Although the tilt of this podcast is generally positive, I purposefully make no statements in reference to HashiCorp's current valuation or what a reasonable estimate of fair value is. In fact, I could be proved wrong in any or all of the research that is outlined here I strongly suggest you do your own research and draw your own conclusions, or that you allocate your investment dollars to an advisor who you compensate. In the second half of this episode, you will hear from Kelsey Hightower. Kelsey is intimately familiar with HashiCorp, yet has never been employed by them, and in some cases could be considered a competitor to HashiCorp. He is the perfect person to put all of this research to the ultimate test. Kelsey is a thought leader in the software development universe and has earned the rare and honorable title of Distinguished Engineer at Google Cloud, where he has worked for the better half of the last decade. Kelsey is a key figure in the development of a project called Kubernetes, which is one of the most popular open source projects of all time. Kelsey is also well known for some of his famous keynote speeches that he has given at HashiCorp's annual developer conferences. We jump right into our conversation now. Kelsey, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'd like to start by asking you about the business model for open source. When I look at the history for open source software, Red Hat was really the only company to find a way to monetize open source software in the early years. And most of those revenues were low margin maintenance contracts that had a heavy percentage of human capital involved. But now we're seeing companies like MongoDB, Elastic, Confluent, and HashiCorp that are all producing hundreds of millions of dollars of high margin subscription revenues and growing really quickly despite their scale. And it just seems like something has happened along the way. And I'd love it if you could just walk us through that evolution. Well, what people may not know is the likes of Apple, um, the devices you use every day, they also have tend to have open source built in. Uh, most people don't talk about it very much. I mean, your DVD player from back in the day, your VHS player from back in the day, there was a high chance there was some open source components running on there, but the product was more of a physical thing, right? But most of these physical electronics, they do need an operating system. And there's been many ways of monetizing open source, right? Either directly or indirectly. In the case of Red Hat, I think they really proved out a sustainable, viable model where they can actually repackage open source keep it safe and secure, you know, keep it upgraded. And when people had trouble using it, they could also be uh, there for support, right? You had someone you can call 
and say, hey, we're having a problem with one of these open source packages. And keep in mind, like Red Hat was dealing with like tens of thousands of these open source packages into their own distribution. And then they gave that a brand. And so I think Red Hat successfully proved out a whole ecosystem, right? People went and got training. Uh, there was lots of skills that were built around it. And then from there, we saw a little bit more of indirect monetization of, of open source, mainly with the cloud, right? So around 2008, there was this big explosion of taking Linux, the operating system. You know, this is what people use to run their applications that they build themselves and created a whole platform. So instead of you just getting like Red Hat, like you mentioned, and buying an operating system on CD, for those that are not aware, like an operating system is something like Windows 95 or, you know, there's newer versions of Windows, newer versions of Mac OS. Back in the day, they used to come on CDs. Now they typically just ship to your computer and automatically update. Well, think about the cloud that way. It's like this big, giant <laughs> computer. It's not really in the sky, but it's this thing that you don't really see, but you can definitely use. And it comes with its own set of operating systems that allow you to run your applications, just like you would play a game on your laptop. And so now you start to have this indirect kind of model where you take the best of open source and you turn it into a service. Right. And so once you start to have a service, people can consume, whether it's an open source database where people would store their data, like medical records, or if you're an accounting firm where you store things like, you know, the accounts that your customers have, all of that starts to become a service. And then as you evolve, we need tools to manage all of that software. And so one model that has proven to work best, let's say you're a new software company, right? Like the days of like a Microsoft from back in the day coming out with just purely proprietary software, that's going to be hard to be successful. Number one, it's going to be hard to raise awareness if your software is expensive, doesn't have a low entry point. Some software or typically open source software tends to be free. I mean, like free as in price and you can go download it. You can run it yourself. But that has been a great way to get initial adoption. And then you tend to turn that open source free software into a product, right? So we try to make this distinction between projects and products. And some of the companies you've mentioned, like HashiCorp, they've been really good at creating developer tools or automation tools that help people leverage all the technology we just talked about before. And then when there's like an enterprise need, maybe things around security or something that only a large enterprise would need, well, they can layer that on top of their open source project and leverage that adoption into a real business. That's a great jumping off point to focus on HashiCorp. I would love to hear more about what your first experience was with the company and how that has evolved over the years. Yeah, so before HashiCorp was a company, you know, there was a open source developer named Mitchell Hashimoto. We know the, obviously the company now shares his, uh, part of his name. And he had a tool called Vagrant. And it was a very popular developer tool that allowed a developer to set up their local development machine uh, in order to write software and mimic how it was going to be deployed to production. And what that means at a high level, let's say you're a chef and you may work at a really fancy restaurant, but let's say you want to practice at home. So you go buy all of the things, pots, pans, knives, kitchen utensils that you would have in your restaurant. And then you can imagine that kit that you buy to practice cooking at home. Maybe it won't be 100% of everything that you have in like this 
state-of-the-art restaurant, but you can buy enough of the stuff to practice those recipes, um, try your hand at cooking different dishes, and Vagrant was that toolkit for a lot of people. It would allow you to get your laptop in position to write software and test it out like you would run it in production. And so over time, there was a huge amount of developer adoption just from Mitchell sharing this free software online. And he mainly did it to solve a problem he had on his own. And so for me, as a developer at the time, it was a tool that I also used uh, for that intended purpose. And then, of course, over time, people would realize that, you know, people need support. They want to support not just Mac, maybe other operating systems like Windows. And so he decided to build a business around this to give companies support. Large enterprises need things like, hey, who's going to train all of our people? And then Vagrant turns into a portfolio of products because developers need more than just a tool like that. They need tools to do all kinds of other things. That's exactly where I'm hoping to take this because HashiCorp has developed a lot of tools since Vagrant and each of them seem to have their own very particular use cases. And I'm wondering if there's any sort of common denominator that unites them all. Yeah, so when you think about the cloud and the different things it offers, right? So at the very lowest level, you know, going back to that kitchen analogy, uh, if you buy a bunch of knives, then you need a wood block to put the knives in, right? You just don't want them sitting on the counter. You may cut yourself. Um, if you buy a lot of spices, you probably want to get a spice rack, right? And ideally, it will come with labels so you can organize all of the spices on your countertop. And if you're, you know, thinking about cooking pizzas all the time, then you may just go and buy a really fancy pizza oven that will help like automate or streamline that process. And so when you think about all the tasks inside of a kitchen that need to be done, you know, if you're a vendor, like, um, you know, if you think about companies who make kitchen appliances and, and different things like knives and pots and pans, well, they decide what segment do they want to get into? Like, should we make a blender? right? Should KitchenAid make knives or should they stick to things like blenders so people can make smoothies? And so when HashiCorp looks around the cloud space, just like that developer laptop, they decided to make a tool that helped, number one, people manage those virtual machines. So we talked about that operating system. Well, when you go to like the store and you buy an operating system or, or a laptop, it kind of comes preloaded with an operating system. And since you're the only one using it and it hardly crashes, um, you can just configure that laptop the way you want, right? You install the video games you want to play. Maybe you're doing some business stuff and you'll install things like Microsoft Office, a web browser. You have your bookmarks. And most people don't really think about it, but that's a form of configuration. But since it's only one laptop and you're really the only one using it and it doesn't crash all the time, you don't really spend time trying to figure out how to automate that. Like in case your laptop were to like get destroyed, you may want an easy way to create a new laptop that has all of your settings on it. So one of the first tools HashiCorp built for the cloud was to make it very easy because in the cloud, applications tend to run on tens, if not thousands of servers. There is no way you're going to set up individual servers the way you set up your laptop. So HashiCorp had a tool called Packer, which basically allowed you to pack all of the things you need to run applications in the cloud using one convenient tool. But then there's another problem. How do you even tell the cloud provider what you want, right? You go to the restaurant, you may tell them, hey, I would like this particular dish, but not too spicy. And 
what Terraform does, which is one of their staple products, they talk about it on its earning calls, and it does represent their kind of growth user base and customer adoption. What Terraform allows you to do is, you know how you have like a mobile app to Starbucks, like you can just put in the order you get all the time. Mm-hmm. And so you go in there, you put in all your settings, you say, hey, I would like this coffee without this, extra cream, blah, 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 and you just save it. And Terraform is like that in many ways. The cloud is infinitely configurable. But when you're using Terraform, it allows you as an organization to customize all of those hundreds of services all the major cloud providers use, store that configuration, and then it just becomes something where maybe in a single command or a button click, depending on what tool you're using, you can create the resources in the cloud and have Terraform manage them going forward. And so that was a very popular tool. Lots of enterprises like, hey, this is the way. Given the complexity of the cloud, given all the knobs and tunables you would have to twist, what a perfect tool to manage that across a team. Hmm. I haven't heard infrastructure provisioning described quite like that before. And that's, that's a really helpful way to think about it. What do you think it is that separates those revenue generative tools like Terraform, Vault, and increasingly console from those that they've been working on for a very long time, but haven't necessarily produced much in the terms of revenues? Yeah, open source is a hard business, right? You know, Jeff Bezos has that quote, your margin is my opportunity. And, yeah. you know, you can't charge too much for your tools, no matter how helpful they are, because just like Mitchell, early on before HashiCorp existed, there are hundreds, if not thousands of developers all over the world creating tools just like that, sometimes out of passion, sometimes as a side project at the organization. I've been one of those people. I've created open source projects, decided to give them away for free. And so you're in constant competition because if you think about it, if there's a collection of companies, let's say they all find themselves paying a million dollars a year for some software. And those groups of companies or employees that work at those companies decide to come together and establish a new community. And that new community might say, hey, we're tired of all paying all of this money for this software, right? We believe it should be free, right? And I know as crazy as that sounds, like why would anyone make something for free? Well, it's almost like a hobby for a lot of people, right? You, you may say, I can do a better job or maybe it's, maybe it's evolving in a way you don't like, right? So like, maybe you look at some of their enterprise offerings and say, you know what? Maybe it's going too far towards the enterprise, making the whole thing way too expensive. Let's start over, right? Let's start a project that's really for those companies that are not so enterprise heavy, and we think we can do it for free. And honestly, it feels good to know that you've created something in the world that increases access. So HashiCorp finds themselves keeping this balance, right? So they have really great open source projects. When they come out with these features, they try to draw the line in a way that's fair, right? Like, hey, if we do this feature, is this something that the open source community needs? Or is it safe to say that this is something that only large enterprises need? And if that's the answer, then it's okay to put it into, you know, the pay for commercial product. But there's always competition. So in not all cases, are they the number one solution or at least top of mind for all developers, right? So they have a a container orchestration tool, like earlier we talked about shipping containers and Kubernetes. 
Well, they have a similar product called Nomad. Um, depending on how you measure success, some would say, you know, Kubernetes has won because every major cloud provider has chosen to base their commercial offering off of this open source project called Kubernetes. And so no matter where you go around the world, there's a huge group of people who believe that Kubernetes is probably the number one tool you should use to solve that type of problem. Well, you have Nomad over here. So given the choice between Nomad and Kubernetes, why would you choose Nomad? Well, some people have brand loyalty, right? Like, you know, I might choose to stick with a particular airline because I have a ton of air miles. Uh, I have status with that airline and I'm just used to the way that they do business. So you know what? I will take a connecting flight when the competitor airline has a direct flight. Sometimes some people may even pay more for an airline ticket as long as they can stay with the brand that they trust. So in the case of HashiCorp, a lot of their tools are designed to work together, but they did something super smart. They realized not everyone has to use only things in the HashiCorp ecosystem. If you think about like Apple and the iPhone, right? If you think about Apple, they make their own monitors, headphones, they make their own laptops, keyboards, and mice. But they don't prevent you from using third-party software from their app store, right? They're not going to go write all the calculator apps in the world, tax preparation software, music editing tools. People will have choice. So HashiCorp in that way, while their products are designed to work well together, typically they also make sure that they work with the things that are in that number one position to be compatible. Yeah, I, I've heard similar feedback in terms of speaking with customers that the sheer number of integrations with things like Terraform and Vault is a key driver of their decision because Terraform's integrated with thousands of different software tools that, that you can use. The one also major feature that companies like HashiCorp have, they have ecosystem. Right. So the thing that makes companies like Apple and the iPhone strong is that app store. The fact that there's so many apps that you can go and download and use on your iPhone. If you think about HashiCorp, HashiCorp doesn't have to build all the software. So let's go back to Terraform. There are four or five, maybe even six major cloud providers, depending how you, how you count them. You have Google Cloud, you have AWS, Amazon's web services. You have Microsoft Azure, you have Alibaba Cloud, you have Oracle Cloud, you have DigitalOcean, which is a smaller one. But all of them have a different way of configuring and leveraging the products and services that they sell. Now, HashiCorp team is only so big, there's no way that they could go off and build all of the deep integrations and stay in lockstep with every new feature each cloud provider builds. But the one thing that, thanks to the open source model, most cloud providers, especially the ones I just mentioned, they tend to have teams who in some ways work full time on making sure that their integrations through Terraform to their product work well. And so that's another advantage of this open source model is that you can actually distribute the work around deep integrations. And so that way your product feels like a first class citizen no matter what cloud customers decide to use. And this is why 
if you ever listen to some of the HashiCorp earning calls, you're, you'll often hear them talk about like multi-cloud. And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that every customer of HashiCorp is using multiple cloud providers. There are a lot of people who stick to just one cloud provider. But if you were to zoom out, they're talking about a situation where their customer base is going to choose the cloud provider that works best for them. And the cool thing about that is there are most customers do have maybe, let's say they're using 99 services in one cloud provider, let's say like Google Cloud. Well, they may be using another service in a company like Cloudflare, right? They're pretty popular. They provide networking service, DDoS uh, protection, which means if your website is super, super popular and people will try to bring your website down by giving a denial of service, right? They'll just send you know, all of this random traffic to deny service to your paying customers. People would use tools like Cloudflare to protect from that. And so what HashiCorp tools does like Terraform, even though maybe you're primarily in Google Cloud using 99 different services, you may just like the way Cloudflare does some of their network protection. And the nice thing is Terraform is going to work across both of those things and tend to feel like first-class products no matter what combination of cloud providers you choose to toss into the mix. Is there a certain scale that an open source project needs to get to in order to get to that first class product status with some of these cloud providers? Well, you know, is there if there's a good framework, you know, there's competition in this space, right? There's companies like Plumi who compete with Terraform, but not the entire HashiCorp portfolio. They're hyper-focused around what we call configuration management, managing the configuration of these various cloud providers. And they may be smaller, but they've already have reached that ecosystem field, right? There are large customers, there's individuals who really like their model, and they choose to contribute. So I think at this point, there's an incentive for cloud providers to actually contribute as well, right? Cloud providers employ lots of engineers, and even those engineers tend to have preferences, And guess what? Our customers have preferences. So what you'll tend to see is the top two or three tools in each category tend to have somewhat first-class support from the major cloud providers, right? So that's the way to think about it. That's interesting that you bring up Pulumi. Can you help me understand the ways in which Terraform and Pulumi are different from each other? So, you know, Terraform has its own custom programming language that they've built. It's based on a language called HCL. So let's say they've chosen the English language, right? And so English is pretty good. You can go almost anywhere in the world, and I travel quite a bit. And if you know English, you're going to do fine. There are some places in the world, like I've gone to China, where there's no guarantee knowing only English is going to be long-term viable. But most places, it's fine. Now, if you know anything about languages, you can't translate everything perfectly, right? Just just some language constructs are different, some cultures are just different, and people have their preferences. And so if you really, really want to allow people to express themselves the best, it does help to have support for their native language. And that's where Pulumi comes in. So sticking with this language analogy... What Pulumi does is says, look, we have a core configuration engine. And while we do very similar things to what Terraform does, we're going to let people do it in their language of choice. 
So if you prefer a very popular programming language called Python, it's very popular in the machine learning space. People have been using it for a very long time. And the way most developers work, I prefer to stick to the language I know. And each programming language has a rich ecosystem of pre-built modules, if you will. Just like every spoken language has its own vocabulary, common phrases, you know, things to draw from. And so if you can speak in that native language, that means you can have a much richer ecosystem. And so in the case of Pulumi, it's very attractive to people who prefer to build cloud provider integrations or automation tools using their language of choice. And so that's a pretty stark difference than what Terraform offers. Uh, so in some ways, they're very similar. There's lots of overlap, but that is one big key distinction between the two products. In Pulumi, if you start with one particular language, do you have to continue doing that? Or if you have two developers within a team that write in different coding languages, can it still work? It can. And, and that's the beautiful thing. There are trade-offs with this though, right? So if you work at a company and the point of all of this is to make things reusable, right? So let's say sticking with our language analogy, if I write the whole movie in English and a new writer joins the team and they decide that they're going to write the last scene in French. <laughs> You're like, hey, um, <laughs> if people are trying to watch the whole movie end to end, this is going to be really weird when we just switch to another language mid-flight. So we could translate French to English, but if it doesn't sound right, then there's going to have to be additional work. So typically, you try to avoid doing that if there's going to be like one movie that you're trying to produce. But let's say you're more like a Disney, right? And you're producing movies for lots of viewers. Well, in that case, you might actually have a situation where one team needs to only be concerned about that one team. And so they may make a version of that movie only for a particular audience. It may only launch in a particular segment of the world. And they don't need to worry about other people watching it. And so in those cases, you can totally create modules in different programming languages. And the cool thing is, even though they're written in different programming languages, you can, you can just like a movie, you can watch them with the subtitles on. So typically tools like Pulumi will say, okay, this module may be written in uh, the Python programming language. This other module may be written in the Ruby programming language. But if you don't know either of those languages, more than likely, you can just use them because they're pre-built, right? You can just execute them and use them as designed. So it's almost like buying a t-shirt, right? Like it doesn't matter if it's 100% cotton or if it's like a blend of polyester and cotton. You're going to put it on the same. It's probably going to be fine. There will be some nuances, but if you just need to wear a shirt, there you go. Hmm. So, if with Pulumi, I can write in any code that I prefer, why do people still use Terraform? Well, it's like if your ecosystem is so big, there's an element of sharing, right? So, if I go and I want to go do something that someone's already done before in Terraform, then there's a rich collection of pre-built Terraform modules, Right? Maybe someone has already figured out 
how to create a virtual machine in the cloud with all the right security systems uh, settings for a large financial institution. Well, I don't want to go do that from scratch. I may want to base mine off of theirs. So just like you notice, people will say, well, you ever met someone, you ask them, hey, how would you learn English? Well, I learned English by watching movies, right? And in order to enjoy more movies, I decided to learn English. So think about HashiCorp's dedicated programming language, HCL. It's a HashiCorp configuration language. So if you learn HCL, that means you get to tap in to this large corpus of pre-built, ready-to-go stuff, and you get to join a community that can now share things using this common language. There's another thing that has been pretty cool. HashiCorp has decided to open source the implementation of HCL. And so when you go use other HashiCorp tools, guess what? You can use the HashiCorp configuration language to configure that other tool. And so there's a lot of return on investment. It's almost like learning English and then going to Europe and being happy that, you know, you went to England or you went to another country and it turns out that English is the second language. Like, yes, I'm so mm. glad I know English because I can use it in multiple places. So there's a lot of incentive because Terraform, you know, they have other tools in their portfolio. Most of them are using HCL one way or the other. You learn it once, you get to use it in multiple places, and there are other tools out there that have chosen to adopt HCL as their official configuration language, even though that tool has nothing to do with configuring cloud providers. Maybe that tool um, presents a way for configuring that device. Let's take your TV, for example, right? You can adjust various settings, like what channel it's on, uh, its brightness, that kind of thing its locality, the default language, whether the subtitle should be on or not. But imagine your TV manufacturer adding Terraform support where you can literally just give it a Terraform configuration file and those will be the settings. That's what we mean by declarative. You can take that language anywhere you want. Is HCL difficult to learn? For someone who's a brand new developer, how long will it take for them to understand and, and get up to speed with HCL? And I think that's why HCL was written. You know, I used to work at a company called Puppet Labs. And Puppet Labs was one of the original configuration management tools before HashiCorp, before Terraform. And before we had what we call domain-specific languages, a DSL. So domain-specific language is really all about dropping a lot of the unnecessary vocabulary required to express yourself. Right. If you think about a child that's like three years old, they only know so many words, right? Or think about the concept of baby talk, like goo goo gaga, right? That's all you need. You want to talk to babies, boom, goo goo gaga, you're good. That is a domain specific languages. It's only good for talking to babies. I wouldn't recommend talking to adults <laughs> with baby talk. It's just going to look silly, but for the task at hand, it is a purpose driven language. And so when you think about um, a new developer, if you told them to go learn some of the bigger, what we call general purpose programming languages, well, that can be daunting. The vocabulary is much bigger. They're way more powerful, but it's more than what you need. So when all someone wants to do is configure a few settings on a cloud provider's resources, then HCL is like this perfect domain-specific language that's optimized for taking almost anyone that wants to get something done 
and letting them just write the minimal amount of language to express themselves as possible. So it's going to be far easier to get started with that than like learning a full-blown programming language. So there are trade-offs, right? Because the simpler the language, well, guess what? When you do want to go and do something way more powerful, you may find the language inadequate to express yourself. We've, we've talked a good bit about Terraform. Can you just help me understand from your perspective, what is Vault and what sort of problems does it solve for you? So, Vault is probably one of the key projects that they have that is really purpose-built for like enterprise situations. And to think about what Vault is all about, I like to think of it as an identity translator. And let's put that into context. You know, today, when you think about getting into your email, you may have a username and password for that. If you think about um, logging into your Netflix account, you have a username and password for that. And so, a lot of people will use something like a password manager. So, if you're using any of those popular web browsers like Google's Chrome or Firefox, they typically have a password manager built in. So, you type in the password once. If you can log into your computer, then you will have access to this password manager. And so, it will fill in the username and password for you so you don't have to walk around remembering all of those things. And so, password managers are really helpful. Number one, they help people think about like, don't reuse the same password everywhere. It would be a real shame if some, you know, little toy website lost your password that you happen to use for your checking account. Like, that would be bad. So, we create these complex passwords so that way we have a different password per site. But now you need a password manager. Okay, so that's how it works in the consumer world. Well, in the enterprise, we also have a set of credentials, but these credentials are a little bit more risky when they get lost, right? Like access to the entire company's database. Well, ideally, you don't want to be emailing that password to all the developers. This can be super dangerous. You just don't want to email passwords at all. It would be even better if you never had to tell the developer the password and then have them type it in to their application or put it somewhere where their application could read. That's just not what you want to do. So you need a different kind of password manager. And in the enterprise, different types of software have different ways of logging in. So we talked about logging into software, but when you log into your house, if you still have like a key, you have to stick the key in the keyhole and then unlock the door. So that's a different form of credential in many cases that you have to have the key to unlock the door. And so, Vault is really good at being able to manage different types of credentials, whether it's a username and password, or in some cases, there is a software version of that physical key. Either way, there's lots of ways to log in into stuff. And so, since we don't want to give things to developers, honestly, they shouldn't need them. These credentials are for applications that are accessing enterprise IT systems. So, what you can do you can have Vault manage all of that for you. And so what would happen is instead of developers logging in and copying passwords around, you can now have applications log in and then Vault will give them only the credentials they're allowed to have. This is like giving one of your children a key to the house. And you say, hey, you can borrow my key, but put it back when you get home. Or I'm not buying you a car, but you can totally drive mine. 
but I will only give you the car key when I want you to drive. And then I'm going to take it back because I don't want you to drive when I'm not around. And Vault is really good at that. Vault can actually create these keys and passwords on the fly for specific applications. This just raises the security posture way up. So Vault is a place where you can store your secrets, your credentials, and then simplify how they're being managed. Because unlike people, where there's one or two people logging into systems, when we talk about like infrastructure, servers, and the cloud, there could be thousands of these applications logging into stuff all the time. And it can be unmanageable if you don't have a tool like this. It sounds like maybe to take that analogy one step further, I can give you the key to my house, but there's also all of these individual keys to things like the cabinet or to the laundry room or all these other different areas that you might want to gain access to. And Vault helps to encrypt and keep or or control access to all of these different compartments within the IT. That's exactly right. Like like when you go to a hotel, that plastic card may open the room door, but not the vault in the closet where you keep your passport and things maybe you don't want housekeeping to mistakenly uh, take from you, right? And so, yes, you have a collection of credentials. Each of them has different form of access. What is it about vault that potentially makes for a sustainable revenue stream? I'm sure there's competitors in this space. Who does Vault compete with? Do they have any advantages over some of these competitors? And what's your gauge on how sustainable it is? Well, again, I used to work in lots of open source startups and it is a hard thing to be sustainable over time. Again, the the more expensive that software becomes, the more likely competition will come to compete with you. And so, if you think about, there's a couple of, let's just talk about risk and trajectories. On one hand, even in the consumer space, there has been a huge movement to get away from username and passwords altogether. People want to go to a passwordless society. And so, what does that mean? Like when you type in these passwords, they're easy to get lost. Uh, they're just hard to manage. It's just, it's just too much. And so, what now people want to do, you may have done this on your mobile device, right? Some people unlock their phone with their face. Some people unlock their computer with their fingerprint. And there's this new thing called pass keys that many vendors have implemented. And what that does is basically gives you a, you know, like a hotel key for every website you go to. So instead of you typing in any password, you can just pick up your phone or put your fingerprint on your computer when you log into each website. And under the hood, they're basically a dedicated hotel room key for each website. No more passwords. Like this is, this is a big path forward. Now, in the cloud, there is the equivalent of that hotel key, that pass key. We call it IAM. You know, all cloud providers do it. And it's based on identity of the service. So, instead of giving out passwords to your apps, you can just give them a dedicated set of credentials. So, imagine every person in your home having their own unique key or, in the case of most computing systems, their fingerprint, right? That's supposed to be unique to each person. And so, now you get rid of the keyhole. And you have a thumbprint and you program that to open the door for all the people I say that are allowed to come in. That's where the industry is moving. So, if you get rid of this collection of random credentials, 
then the tool to manage them should go away as well, right? There's just less need for that. And you do have companies that have said, hey, we want everything we do to be passwordless. Well, in those scenarios, then you don't really think about a tool like Vault. The second thing I'll say here is, again, if Vault is critical for your customer today, each cloud provider has to make a decision. Do they have their own key management system, right? And most cloud providers do have a very basic key management system. But every year, right, they have these large conferences. And if you're someone that competes in the space, you're always waiting for that announcement. Are they going to try to compete with my feature set? And that can also change the landscape of whether I should buy a third-party tool or should use the one that comes with my cloud provider. That gets a little bit more to the multi-cloud that you talked about. Does HashiCorp have a unique position if one of the cloud providers were to try to compete with them, really with, with any of their solutions, but I guess more specifically with Vault? Well, you know, Terraform also competes with cloud providers. Most cloud providers have a native way of managing and configuring their services. And each of them does it in a different way. A lot of times they're using a different quote-unquote programming language in which to do it. And so as a customer, if you're dealing with two or three of these things, you're like, oh, I don't want to learn three languages. Maybe they don't all have the same amount of power. They don't all have the same workflow. In that case, you might say, you know what, I'm just going to use Terraform and let Terraform normalize everything for me. So Terraform has been competing in the configuration management space for a very long time, but in many ways, it's a pretty high commodity, right? So the amount of money people are willing to pay for that is much lower than what they're able to or willing to pay for something like Vault. Vault is closer to the security space. So a lot of times you're going to be getting security budgets that are going to go towards a security tool, which is great. But when you start to think about um, maybe long term, I think what happens is Vault tends to do a really good job of user experience, right? We know how this works. Why not go to the cheaper restaurant or the one that's closer to your house? Like you may not like the service. Right? You might say, hey, I really like the way Vault feels in my hand, so I'm going to just use that tool because it integrates with the way I want to automate my systems. So you're going to have a lot of that. Um, the other component you're going to have is there is a free version of Vault that does about 95% of everything you want to do. So in many ways, Vault Enterprise competes with Vault Open Source. So mm -hmm. if you're a customer that doesn't really need all the big enterprise features, then you can be fine and get really far with the open source version of Vault and just run it yourself. But if you're a large enterprise where you need to make sure that your software has some accountability behind it, you might want to be able to call someone in case there's problems. You might need education for your team. This is all service. You know what I mean? And so in those cases, you might want to look for a brand that you trust, right? Like when you go buy things at the grocery store, there's a certain set of brands, like when you're buying medicine, that you trust. And so there's a lot of brand loyalty. They've done a good job over the years in terms of their security posture, keeping their software safe. They have great documentation. They have a great user experience. Their tools feel very familiar. 
to configure Vault, you can actually use HCL in many cases. And so there's this familiarity that brings out brand loyalty across the developer base. So in those scenarios, I would say HashiCorp has done a great job balancing the needs of the open source community. Uh, you can download Vault for free today. You can actually extend it with new functionality if you really, really want it to and solve your own need. You may not be able to necessarily launch a whole business and reuse the name Vault. You can kind of call it something else. But they've walked this fine line between open source community and commercial uh, customers. And I think they've done that well. And this is why I think you don't see a ton of competition in the space because what most people need, you can kind of download for free. But for the people who can afford to pay most, they typically decide to. That's really interesting. And it gets to something else that I wanted to ask about. When I look at some of the open source projects that are out there, I think it's not necessarily a given that the one who creates the open source project is necessarily the one who monetizes that project best. And I think back to the Hadoop wars that went on between Cloudera and Hortonworks. That's maybe a good example. And more recently, you have AWS, which famously built a fairly sizable revenue stream on the backs of the Elasticsearch project. And when I look at HashiCorp, there doesn't seem to be that problem though. When it comes to any of their tools, it seems like HashiCorp is the only one that is monetizing Terraform or Vault. Do you have any idea as to why that is? Actually, there's a lot of companies that monetize Terraform. Um, there's lots of startups. They offer different workflows, different ways of using Terraform. Uh, if you think about Terraform being a, a set of raw ingredients to build things, they have their own user experiences. They've hidden it under some bigger tool that solves whatever problems that Terraform has. Like Terraform isn't a perfect tool. And so what you'll have is you'll have startups that will just bake Terraform into a different product, right? Terraform is typically used during the process of deploying applications. So what you'll see is you might see another vendor that will take Terraform, the free version, add their own enterprise integration, and then include it in a larger product that they wish to sell. So in that case, they'll treat Terraform like batteries, right? It's like, mm. I really want to sell you this big electronic equipment, not batteries. So we're going to repackage the battery for you and we'll deal with all the integrations. So then it feels more like an OEM in that case. And so there's still plenty of space to compete on the experience component. And so I think that's where the competition will be. So some people will strictly compete on price. You know, you might have a smaller startup that say, hey, we do Terraform support. If something's broken, we'll fix it. You'll, you'll always have those scenarios. And this is why I think the entry point and price point for Terraform is much lower. Um, and, and it's just, and it's the fact that Terraform also needs cloud provider integrations to be useful, right? You just don't download Terraform and it's useful by itself. You need those cloud provider modules. And guess what? Most of those modules are built and maintained by the cloud provider. So in many ways, there's this delicate balance that needs to happen. Terraform by itself isn't valuable alone without those cloud provider integrations. So how much can you charge for those? Well, a cloud provider is always going to be in a position to create and maintain those modules themselves. And so the core engine of 
Terraform is open source. So now they have things like Terraform Cloud, which gives you like a workflow and a better experience than what you would get out of the box from the open source project. So there's a lot of competition in that space. There has There's probably a managed Terraform service before Terraform Cloud, right? You know, you can see people starting to compete with you. In the case of Vault, a lot of the functionality that, that you see in Vault, again, if you look at the key management servers um, from different cloud providers, like Google Cloud has a secrets manager product. Amazon has a secrets manager product. And for a lot of people, that's good enough for the 80% use case. Or a lot of the things that Terraform does, it may have like five or six different things it does, not just a fancy password manager. It can do some other security-related things that you might be able to purchase a la carte for more specific products. So there's, there's a bit of competition depending on how you look about it and you compose it. But again, I think for them, making sure that they just really grow adoption with a strong open source community base, having the right integrations with the tools developers want to use, whether those are HashiCorp native tools or tools like Kubernetes, and then being at the ready as a public traded company with the backing to really support large enterprises that really want to deal with companies that can truly support their needs, whether it's professional services or being able to afford to patch security vulnerabilities as soon as they come out. So that gives HashiCorp a really strong advantage there. Okay. Would you say the primary advantage for HashiCorp going forward is the large scale community that they have built around all of their tools? 100%. You know, anyone that's going to enter this space, and you've seen it, I've seen it, where new entries will come in and say, we support Terraform modules, right? Why not? If I'm going to make a new DVD player, I need to be compatible with all the existing movies. And so, a lot of times you may come in and say, hey, we're also compatible with that landscape because that ecosystem becomes the moat, if you will, right? That strong ecosystem mm. is the thing that you want to pay attention to. So, if you start to see people moving away from a particular tool, that's when you start to get worried. Like, um, you know, there's been a lot of big infrastructure projects that saw their community shrink way down. OpenStack. You know, that was kind of like some tooling to let you run your own version of like AWS or private cloud on-prem. But that community started to shrink rapidly after it came out and, and people kind of saw the writing on the wall. When that community shrinks, that's a bad sign going forward for anyone that's in the OpenStack business because you just know the growth won't be there. You need that community to be the top of the funnel that will feed into those enterprise deals. So when you're starting to see the bottom part of that community moving on to something else, well, then that's where the growth potential will be. So I think when investors think about what to watch for, you know, it's just like when you want to invest in like, I don't know, a music label, like what genre of music is really popular? What things are winning the awards? Where's the community? Where's the new music coming from? So there's lots of signals in the community to tell you you know, where is the puck going? And community growth is one great signal uh, that can tell you that. Would you say the HashiCorp community is healthy at this time? Stellar. It's stellar, right? Because the open source projects are so good. I was at one of their conferences and I remember uh, they came out with Vault. And there was one feature that they did to make Vault really easy to set up. 
and it was an enterprise-only feature. And as someone who's contributed to these tools in the open source community, as someone who has been a long-term user of these tools in the open source community, you know what? You kind of get bummed out when a new feature comes out, but it's only for the pay-for edition. And I get it. Everything can't be free, right? They have a business to run. Like all of those people that work on the free version, they need to get paid. So it's fair. And I remember going on social media. I was on Twitter. I was like, the day that HashiCorp makes this vault feature part of the open source, I'll wear a HashiCorp t-shirt for like a month. <laughs> and uh, they had this conference a couple of years ago and uh, they gave me the heads up like, hey, Kelsey, we are going to do exactly that. You know, what they tend to do at HashiCorp is when they get even more enterprise features, they take another look at the ones that are paid for and decide which ones can move into the open source arena. And that's a healthy way of doing it, right? Letting pay for customers get access to features maybe a couple of years ahead of everyone else, which is fair. And I remember they added it to the open source. They made it available to everyone. And I flew down and they let me do a little live demo to prove it was real. And <laughs> I unzipped my hoodie and I had my HashiCorp t-shirt on. Did you wear it for the month? I wear it for a number of days. <laughs> That's funny. Let's talk a little bit more about the multi-cloud. We've touched on a little bit here. David McJanet has said several times that he believes that the steady state of cloud is multi-cloud. And can you help me understand maybe why he believes that and, and if you share that belief? I share that belief and there's a lot of nuance there. And so let's think about um, large corporations, right? Lots of large corporations, they grow through acquisitions. They don't necessarily build all of their greatest products. Sometimes you go acquire. Like if you look at Oracle and you look at over 20 years, think about the number of companies Oracle has bought. Mm -hmm. And when you buy a company, you buy it in its current form. Whatever programming language that is written in, you bring that over. Whatever team that built that, you bring it over. And then a lot of times, now that a lot of companies are being built in the cloud, let's say you're a large organization and everything that you've chosen to build, you've chosen to build that on Microsoft Azure, right? You're all in. You sign a huge commit agreement, all your people are trained up, and everything you build going forward will be all about Microsoft Azure. You notice that your company has a product gap. And you want to close that gap quickly. So you look around and you find the number one solution in that space and you make an acquisition. Now, of course, part of your due diligence, you would love for that company to be running on Azure. Right? Like that would be perfect. But they may not be. And typically, let's say they're running on Amazon Cloud or Google Cloud. You're probably still going to acquire that company. And when you acquire that company in that instance, you are now a multi-cloud organization. It doesn't mean that you're going to go take your stuff in Azure and figure out how to run it in both. That That's kind of illogical for a lot of people. Like, I'm not going to go buy a Ford and Chevy truck so I can be multi-vendor like, for cars. Right? It's like, <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? I might go to Ford to buy a truck, but I might go to Volkswagen to get a sedan. 
that's okay, right? Like that that makes sense because they're all equally good at what they do. And if I want an EV, you might prefer something like Tesla. And so at that moment, you now have multiple car manufacturers that you're dealing with. And the reason why it's not such a challenge is because all cars tend to go on the same roads. They tend to be, they tend to adhere to standards. They tend to fit in the same garages. So the logistics around having cars from different vendors, it's okay because there's enough standards in place that just makes that work. The cloud isn't quite like that. The cloud is still in the mode where there are some services across cloud providers that work roughly the same way, uh, but they are configured in different ways, aka Terraform becomes helpful. There are services that one cloud provider has, but another cloud provider doesn't. So that may kind of push me towards using two cloud providers, one for that unique product or service, kind of like going to Ford for a truck and then going to Mercedes for a sedan. So those two worlds will, I think, are inevitable. And then over time, cloud providers will probably start to standardize on things like you talked about earlier. Kubernetes is available across all cloud providers. So in scenarios like that, you can go get Kubernetes from multiple cloud providers and things roughly work the same, but of course, to configure them will be slightly different. So when you hear them talk about this multi-cloud world, there's another element is that everyone's not going to choose the same cloud provider, just period. So Mm -hmm. if your goal, if your total addressable market is every customer in the world, then you know there's going to be some healthy percent that choose Microsoft for whatever reason, healthy percent that will choose Amazon for whatever reason, and Google Cloud for whatever reason. And given that, most people, when they learn these automation skills, they move around from company to company They also want to invest in skills that are portable. And so when they start to look at their tools, they have to ask themselves a question. Do I learn the cloud provider specific version of this tool? Or do I bet on something like one of the HashiCorp tools and then be able to leverage that skill set across multiple cloud providers? So that's really Mm -hmm. what you're looking at when you hear about multi-cloud. That seems to support a little bit of an advantage for HashiCorp relative to the cloud providers if they were to try to compete with them on a provisioning tool or a secrets management tool or really anything else that you know they might try to monetize. Yeah, and I think you mentioned some companies earlier like Elastic and Confluent. You know, the thing that makes a lot of their tooling great is the open source fundamentals that back them. And so you know, one of the obvious risks would be what happens if every cloud provider were go to have a managed vault service, fully integrated, nothing to deploy, nothing to download. And you know what? Let's make it free. <laughs> right? That that can be a real challenge. And so I think that's always going to be there. And as long as HashiCorp can continue innovating, providing kind of unique features that are not available in open source, getting that balance right. I think they'll be in really good shape. But like for anything, there's always going to be competition. So I think competition also represents opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they're hyper-focused in their space. Um, you know, if you look at it, Apple is still successful, even though there's competitors. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the right way to look at it. Can HashiCorp continue to earn their slice of the pie? If they continue to focus on community, ecosystem, and being 
being a collection of tools that developers would use no matter where they work. There's something to be said about that, right? For an individual practitioner to identify with that brand of tools and said, that's what I would like in my tool belt. That goes a long way in terms of competing with any provider that comes along afterwards. Hmm. Speaking to those customers, HashiCorp cites roughly 20% of the Global 2000 as paying customers. And it certainly seems that their open source tools are in use with a significant proportion of the Global 2000. I know you haven't worked for HashiCorp or anything like that, but do you suspect that the reason why that 80% generally is not a paying customer yet is because they're not far enough along in their cloud adoption to the point to where they would need to pay for some of these enterprise features? I mean, honestly, in this case, in this scenario, you would say HashiCorp is a victim of their own success. Hmm. They have a dilemma. Do you weaken the open source project to the point where it's not really usable unless you pay for it? If you do that, then I'm just going to go use a different open source project. And if I'm competing, if I'm trying to get in the door with these customers, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to make my open source project the end-all be-all. And honestly, I might be satisfied with a services business, right? I might say, Mm -hmm. I don't really care about software licenses. Just call me for service and I'm okay having a 100-person company and we'll compete with that. And they could. And so, I think when you think about all the people who use these tools for free, in many ways, they are contributing bug fixes. They are testing that software and making it bulletproof for the next set of paying customers. It's really good to have that number of practitioners building these tools out. Now, if I were to hire, if I'm a large, if I'm part of that population that is paying HashiCorp, one of the reasons why I'm paying is because I know the talent is out there, right? I know it's being used. I know the community is going to be sustainable. But you're right. I mean, if I can get the majority of what I need to get done with the open source version, I'm, I'm good. I, I might not see the need to pay because their tools are roughly fairly easy to use and run. They've done a good job. They, they don't make it hard on purpose. So if you look at their product portfolio, I can download the majority of those tools. I can run them. I can get 100% of the value that I need using 90% of the feature set. And now you have to measure the cost. If it costs me, I don't know what the pricing model would be for a typical enterprise install. Let's say it's 100 grand. And engineers are bad math, by the way. <laughs> Most engineers are willing to trade about $110,000 of their time to not pay that $100,000, right? They might say, I'm going to fix things in my downtime, or I really like working on this thing, so I'm going to do that instead of something else more important. So, HashiCorp is in constant competition with themselves. I used to work at a company called Puppet Labs. We had the same situation. There's an open source version of our product. That's the thing that brings in potential customers. And to close them, you have to give them something of value to pay for. And I think that's where 
when you look at their product and you look at the new features that land in enterprise, you can almost look at the release notes to see where they're seeing growth and what enterprises need to justify worth paying for. So I think that's it. But a lot of times, if you think about it, if you're in the cloud, there's one thing, I mean, it's just a little technical, but when you think about Vault, Vault has one of the first enterprise features that they had was the ability to store your master secrets in what they call it HSM. So these are like physical devices that you would buy and they would actually be like, you know, James Bond level encryption, okay? <laughs> and so, they're expensive. These things might be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they're designed that if you're running your own data center, you would buy one of those and they would encrypt all your master keys. So, this would be like the safe where you put your car keys, everything else, and then that safe needs to be bulletproof and very hard to open. But once you open it, then of course, you can use secrets. But when you seal it, you want no secrets accessible. And some enterprises elected to buy their own, like what they call HSM, hardware security module. And these are like enterprise grade things that were very expensive. And so that type of customer that needs that integration and they want to use Vault on top to make it easy for developers to leverage those keys and having Vault be the only thing that can unlock that safe, that HSM. Well, you know right off the bat, that is a only an enterprise feature. So, you throw that in the enterprise product. Hmm. All your open source customers, they're not going to complain. They don't even have one of those. So, for them, they haven't lost anything. In the cloud, guess what? Cloud providers have an equivalent of that HSM that you can rent by the hour. Hmm. So, now, if you're running Vault in the cloud... Even if you're an enterprise, you might be able to get that HSM functionality from the cloud provider at a fraction of the cost, therefore delaying the need to purchase the enterprise version of Vault because you don't have the hardware HSM anymore. So that's the type of constant struggle and internal competition that they face on a regular basis. Hmm. Something you said earlier in the first half of that answer intrigued me about how someone could easily go grab another open source tool. To what extent does the HashiCorp cloud platform kind of change that calculus? Because it takes away the need to manage some of those open source tools, right? That's exactly right. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people still prefer to like have the ability to download and run it themselves to push come to shove. And that way you can be responsible for your own downtime. Like the worst thing in the world is to have like your managed service to go down. You're watching the Super Bowl and your CBS streaming app goes down. You're just like, oh my God, this is terrible. <laughs> Let me put the antenna up and go old school, right? And just control my own destiny with the airwaves. And so, you kind of still have that. But yes, you're right. A lot of people will also assign value to managing these things, right? So, if you look at tools like we've been talking about today, they have instructions. And there's a lot of that goes into maintaining that software. You got to deploy it. You have to get a server. You got to pay for the server. You need expertise to keep it maintained. And there's just a lot of work that goes into that. And so, how much is that worth to you? Now, some companies could say, that's worth at least one engineer 
or two engineers' time, depending on the number of HashiCorp products you're using. And so let's say that calculates to $200,000, $300,000. Well, if the managed service in the cloud, because they can do this efficiently, right? They have the experts. They don't have to just run one instance just for me. They can aggregate me across all their customers and do it securely. For them, they may say, look, we can run that service for you for $50,000. Well, I can do the math and say, well, for $50,000, and based on my usage pattern, I can stay in that $50,000 ballpark. That's a deal. Now, there's a scenario where, you know, a lot of times these things are like paid based on how much you consume. So, in those scenarios, um, if I'm consuming a lot, then it becomes cheaper to run it myself. Like, let's say your, your bill is going to be $5 million. Well, you might say, look, it's worth it for me now just to pay $300,000 for two people to manage the HashiCorp stuff. And honestly, once I have those two people, they can help out in other areas as well. So, there's always this delicate balance on how much you can charge for the managed services. So, the cloud is a really convenient way to take the friction out of adoption for some of these services and tools that they have. It also allows them to layer on something you cannot do in the open source easily, which is an experience, right? So when you look at their cloud offerings, it's almost like going to a restaurant, right? So if open source is like the grocery store, then the cloud offering is like the restaurant. Now I can give you dedicated menus. I can choose the music we play. I can choose the lighting conditions. I can choose the type of service that you get. I can make it super convenient. You don't need to take these ingredients home and build it yourself. You can just order off the menu. And so I think that's the thing that adds additional value. But keep in mind, there's a lot of companies that can decide that they can provide similar value, right? If we're all going to just bury Terraform underneath this cloud product, then I can do that too. When a customer begins paying for one of HashiCorp's solution, be it Terraform, Vault, Console, they even announced uh, Boundary as their first paying customer in the earnings call a couple of days ago. Um, But just generally, when customers start paying for these enterprise licenses or cloud features, does it then become hard to switch off of some of these solutions? Well, it can, right? You know, one thing is, let's say you're using Terraform Enterprise. And let's say one of those enterprise features is like policy management, like deciding who can do what. And that's baked in only to the enterprise version, okay? And so, if you start using that, there is no alternative that's baked into Terraform, right? So, then, yeah, you kind of, you know, we hear this a lot in the software business, lock-in, right? Hmm. If I start watching Netflix originals, ain't nowhere else you can watch Netflix shows, right? There may be other shows that are available across multiple platforms. And if you just stick to that, I don't know why you would do that. Like buy Netflix and then not watch any of the Netflix (laughs) shows. It's kind of like defeats the point if you're doing that. But some people choose to do that. So, you kind of get locked in. And so, in the HashiCorp world, there are some features that are so convenient, so useful, so helpful that they're very, you know, you get, you can kind of get locked into those things. But the ecosystem is pretty smart. The ecosystem may say, well, we can wrap things around the open source project or we can modify the open source project to allow us to do this with a third-party tool. And so, that's where things get a little interesting because 
you know, even their customer, paying customer may say, hey, I'm not looking forward to be locked in to this. I don't mind paying you because you do a good job with service, but I'm also uncomfortable with you doing things in a way that I can never get off. And so I think customers over the decades have learned that you need to make sure as a paying customer, you guide your solution provider in a way that doesn't get you locked in. So lock-in is still a thing that customers will be aware of. They will raise that as a concern. And what that does, though, it kind of keeps everyone honest in this. So how does that look? Well, the thing that allows Terraform to have policies, HashiCorp can then decide, we're going to put the low-level hooks in the open source project. But then in the enterprise product, there'll be an implementation. And the analogy there would be, you know, you're going to buy a remote one without batteries, but if you open the back, you can see there's slots for batteries. And then if you buy one from me directly, they'll they'll ship with batteries, right? And so in those cases, you got to decide, well, how much are the batteries worth, right? If they're swappable, I may choose to go get a different type of battery, maybe one that's rechargeable versus the ones that you give. And so that's just a constant struggle. Um, but again, that's the nature of competition. Hmm. Maybe a little bit of a different question. What is HashiCorp working on today that you are probably most excited about? Hmm. You know, if you look at their... I love the integration that they're doing with the de facto standards. Like Kubernetes is a good example. You know, in the last couple of months, they've announced native integration for Vault and Kubernetes. Before, you have to do a bunch of work yourself to get that to work. And, you know, maybe they want to show value and there's native integration between Nomad, which is their Kubernetes or container management competitor, but not quite for Kubernetes. And so, when you kind of look at the roadmap, they're like, hey, we now have native Vault integration for Kubernetes. Like, that's a huge win because that's going to make it so much more convenient to use those two things together. So I'm excited about, because at all technology cycles, there comes a situation where we need maturity, right? We need it to just work, no bugs. And we're talking about infrastructure here. And infrastructure is meant to be boring, right? When you drive down the road, <laughs> you want a very boring experience, right? <laughs> you, you don't want to hit a pothole and get a flat tire. That would be exciting, but that's not what you want from infrastructure. And so I, I'm actually looking forward to a lot of these things maturing, right? Like you got to remember, some of these products haven't hit 1.0, like stable version until recently, like maybe in the last year or so. Hmm. So it's super important for infrastructure at this nature that people rely on to run critical services, reach that step of maturity so that people can just focus on using them. And then those things end up becoming de facto standards. So I'm just one of those people that have been around long enough to know that this software and infrastructure tools do not become super successful until they become boring, right? Where people can just rely on them without any problems. They become de facto standards. And in my case, I'm so happy that they're really leading the charge on doing native first party integrations with the broader ecosystem, even the one they didn't create, 
that removes a lot of friction, especially for people who tend to mix and match the tools and the providers in which they come from. Has HashiCorp achieved that de facto standard kind of tier for any of their tools yet? Yeah, I would say for Terraform, it's kind of the de facto standard. And how can I say this? Well, if you go to most cloud providers' documentation, you will see Terraform examples. Here's how to use our product using Terraform. That That is huge. Like no one does that until they feel like you are the de facto standard. And so they've definitely achieved that. A number of years ago, they've achieved that. And the other telltale sign is that you have these large cloud providers that are dedicating teams to maintain these integrations. So that ship is sailed. Like Terraform, it's its place in that part of the stack. I think it's here mainly because the open source version is so good. Cloud providers are maintaining their integrations. We're in a really good lead here. Um, there's still competition coming though. So Mm-hmm. While it's a de facto standard, again, once things start getting boring, other people start getting creative. You know, like there's um, there's various companies out there that are saying, should we even be writing HCL to begin with? Maybe that's old, right? Maybe mm-hmm. we shouldn't even do that anymore. You have some cloud providers are like, maybe our API should be easier to use when you don't even need a tool like Terraform. So, those kind of things are on the horizon. So, yes, you can achieve being that de facto standard, but that doesn't mean that the world isn't evolving around you. And mm-hmm. when you're successful, you can't, you can't change dramatically. Like, you remember when, when Microsoft tried to change the way their operating system looked? Like, they just moved the start button. And people were like, what is this, Microsoft? The start button <laughs> is in the lower left-hand corner, period. Put it back. (laughs) Put it back. (laughs) Right? So, I think they'll do a great job with the existing market. There's still people to convert over. There's probably some large number of people that are only using open source that are potential customers. That's going to be great for them. But you also have to pay attention to how the world is evolving around them that may render that approach unnecessary. And I don't think we're close to that. But as a technologist, I'm definitely paying attention. Yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like the the de facto standard is not an excuse to, you know, kick your feet up, uh, have a glass of lemonade and call it a day. I'll give you another good example. Amazon was the first cloud provider as we know it. And Amazon came out with their first cloud service called S3 around 2006, 2007, right? And S3 is a place is called uh, like the simple object store. And it's a place where you can store a large file. So think about if you're using your mobile device, you take a photo and you know how it says it's like it's stored in the cloud. Mm-hmm. More than likely, that manufacturer or person providing that photo app is probably storing that photo in something like an S3 bucket. So S3 becomes wildly popular, especially for this new world where people are creating all these videos and images and just need all of this storage. Okay. So this is object store. You treat a photo like a photo and you can retrieve it on demand. This is great. It's also great for things like backups. So, S3 becomes so popular. It has this multi-year head start. And they're all kind of competing systems that do similar things. But the ecosystem is so rich. 
that everyone understands what S3 is. They like the tools for interacting with it. And then it becomes super stable, right? S3 is not exciting, right? It was when it came out. No one's seen anything like it, especially at that price point. You can, sh- you can store images for like 001 cents. There's nothing close to that. And so it becomes exciting. Then it becomes stable. Now, once it became stable, guess what? Most of the incumbents decided to implement the S3 API on top of their existing tools. And so if you go to other cloud providers, guess what? They tend to have an S3 compatible API right on top of their own service. And so now standardization turns into commoditization. It's no longer a unique thing. It's just what everyone has. And that can be dangerous. And now you start competing on price. And that's never where you want to find yourself where, you know, people can do exactly what you do for much cheaper. Then you kind of get a race to the bottom or you find yourself in a situation like the airlines, right? People just want to fly. And so they're willing to do that at the cheapest price. Not everyone's on board with the loyalty programs. We haven't talked yet about console. And I'd love to hear your description of what it is, what problems it solves for developers, and maybe who it competes with and what differentiates it. So console was one of the earlier products that were in that infrastructure, starting to get boring, but never really becoming a de facto standard depending on how you look at it. So console was really there in the early days to store um, configuration. It's almost like a back-end tool for all their other services. They need somewhere to store stuff. Like when you set settings on your TV, there is a storage thing inside of your TV that remembers those settings. When we think about all of the HashiCorp products, they also need somewhere to store things like Vault needs a place to store secrets. Um, Nomad needs a place to store the applications that you want to run. And so console is this like independent layer that allows you to store stuff generically, right? It's a key value store, right? So it's like this database, it does this thing. And if you think about its critical role, it also played another role in letting people who do run services in the cloud or pretty much anywhere, to be honest, when you launch a service, well, it's hard to find where it is. Like, how do I find the application I just deployed? And so it has another feature set called service discovery, and that makes it easier for different applications to communicate with each other. It's a very low-level tool, right? It's almost like, um, I don't know, in some cases, it's almost like the phone book, right? Like you, you get a business, you register your address and phone number, and then people can find it. But that's a very low-level detail, right? Like you might see an address book embedded in something like Google Maps, right? You open up a map, you search for food that you want to eat, and then a mm-hmm. bunch of restaurants show up, right? That that could be a – that's literally a form of service discovery, right? I want to find some food service. And you type in what you want, and then out comes this list, and then you pick one, and then off you go. Our applications kind of work the same way behind the scenes. They need to know where things are. Once they've discovered them, they can then go talk to them and, you know – uh, make a request and get a response back. That's how it works. So it's this very low level piece that's just tucked away behind the scenes. And that's something that they never really tried to monetize. It's like the batteries inside of the electronics. It's necessary. But then over time, 
they realize that console stores some very important information. Since it knows about all of the applications, it can tell you which one is closer to the other one and help you pick the best one. So just not just show you the list. Like, you know how you go to like Google Maps and you type in like a type of food that you want? It shows you all the restaurants, but they're ordered by the one that's closest to you. Or it may even show you the price of that menu on average. So now you have a lot more metadata to make a decision on which restaurant to eat at. Well, console said, hey, how about we start saving some of that information about which applications are closer to each other? And so then they start to evolve into a new space, a new category that became super popular over the last couple of years called service mesh. It's a huge topic on its own. But service mesh combines a lot of things that enterprise customers typically would like to have inside of their infrastructure. All of those apps need to talk to each other securely. Just like when you go to a website and you put in your credit card information and you look for that little lock in the left-hand corner, well, you want to make sure it's secure. And so service mesh tried to bring a lot of these security things and we can go into some more technical details, but just keep in mind that it was a way to secure communications across lots of things. That was a great area for HashiCorp. That whole space became super exciting. Everyone's talking about service mesh. And guess what? A lot of the service meshes had something like console built in by default. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm being left out of this new conversation, right? Um, people are providing value on top and not necessarily my thing is part of that conversation. And so when you look at that landscape, you look at the revenue potential, you look at the product space, it's almost like when Apple decides to come out with a watch, right? Apple has all kinds of products and then one year they're like, it's time to make a, an Apple watch, right? Someone does the analysis and says, you know, we can figure out how to reposition some of the things we already have. Like when we saw the iPhone and of course the iPad, right? They look very similar, but they're different because they're just different categories of things. So in many ways, HashiCorp already had, let's just call it 50% of the infrastructure necessary to build a service mesh. And so they decided to enter the space officially. And so now console basically has a service mesh component now. And so now they compete in this new category by reusing similar technology that they already had, bonus points for using HCL to configure it, and now they get to play in this service mesh space. And who would you consider console's primary competitors in the service mesh space? Well, so now you're starting to get into competition with the F5s of the world, right? They purchase Nginx and, you know, they moved into the service discovery space through that service mesh space through that purchase of Nginx. So, now you're dealing with the F5s of the world. Um, more than likely, you'll start dealing with maybe Cisco's if they decide to enter that category. But every cloud provider has a service mesh too. Okay. You know, if you look at Amazon, they have a thing called App Mesh. VMware, in many ways, has their own version of Istio or service mesh. So the service mesh category is something that you find in lots of products because you need something like that to work. But again, across the cloud providers, it works differently. So if you look at their playbook, it's very similar to the one like Terraform. Wouldn't it be nice if service mesh worked the same across the different cloud providers? So that's an opportunity. 
And there's lots of startups in this area that are trying to bring their service mesh products to market based on open source projects. So there's more of an equal playing field. I would say the most popular open source project in the service mesh world is a product or project called Istio. And there's another competitor in that space called Linkerd. And in the case of Linkerd, there is a clear startup that's behind it, very similar to the HashiCorp model. They have an open source project. They have a enterprise product. And they go out and they sell support and new features on top of the open source. So that would be Linkerd. But in the case of Istio, Istio is a little bit more like Linux. Every cloud provider can repackage and sell Linux to you in their own way. And Istio is kind of like that. There's a lot of things that are built on top of Istio that different providers, whether they're small startups, existing large providers like the VMwares of the world or the cloud providers of the world, they'll take Istio and turn it into more of a managed service for you. So now HashiCorp kind of finds themselves, you know, competing in that space. But it makes sense because if you're already using console, if you're already in the HashiCorp ecosystem, then this is going to be a really nice thing. So let's take that enterprise that is already using Vault or Terraform, right? There's a lot mm-hmm. of people using Terraform. And now you're starting to hear about service mesh. You look around and there you go. You're already dealing with HashiCorp. You're familiar with HCL. Maybe you already have a few of the tools. And now you can bring in this other element that extends the capabilities of console into that new set of capabilities that you've been looking for. Hmm. If we were to wrap up our conversation and looking forward over the next, you pick the timeline, three, five, 10 years, what would you summarize as the biggest opportunities for HashiCorp? And ultimately, what would you summarize as the biggest risks? Well, I mean, the number one biggest opportunity is turning that brilliant ecosystem of open source contributors, people who speak at conferences. I mean, they have a real community and turning that community into customers. That is the biggest opportunity that they have, right? Because those are well-qualified customers. They're familiar with the product space and the opportunities to give them value worth paying for. So I would say that's the number one opportunity over the years. And then I think the maybe the number one risk is going to be as as they become the de facto standard, that's going to give people a reason, more people a reason to compete with them, right? If Vault, mm-hmm. the API behind it becomes the de facto standard, I would say today it's it's probably not. It's probably one of the most popular, but I wouldn't say it reached the same level of de facto standard that Terraform has. And But if it did, you may find more people wanting to compete around that. So I think as the more successful they get, the more that they prove that people are willing to pay for these de facto protocols and standards, the more people that may decide uh, to compete with them in that space. And I think that's the biggest risk because, you know, with all open source projects, the biggest risk you have is that someone will fork your open source project, give it a new name, and the community would go over there instead. And that is a real risk. And, and it's something that can just have, like almost happen overnight. You can imagine how this would go, right? Someone goes and, and, and forks a vault, 
and they rename it KeePass. Based on the license, in many ways, you can do that legally. Mm. And maybe you don't have all the enterprise features, but you give it a new name and the community for some reason agrees that that's the path they want to follow. And so what happens is that potential pipeline of new customers has moved over and maybe a new startup emerges around KeePass that decides that they want to provide enterprise features, but in a different way that is more compatible with the needs of their community. That is always a risk when you're based on open source. You also have to be great stewards of your open source project and not lose sight of the base that supports you, even if it's not monetarily. It almost sounds like a similar comparable would be social media companies, which benefit from network effects. And you can see just how quickly things can change. You know, you look at a company like Facebook and some of their struggles to compete with TikTok. Maybe that's not an accurate uh, analogy, but it sounds very similar. It is very accurate. And in that space, we say content is king. You know, Terraform is useful because of the things it can configure. Vault is useful because of the things that it stores and encrypts for people. If I take my secrets to a different system, then Vault isn't so useful anymore. And so, content is the things that people create and those are the things that people need to have managed. And those things are roughly standardized. And so, people have a choice. And those things are, it's hard to know what to do. This is why HashiCorp deserves every innovative label they've earned. They saw these opportunities, they've created great projects and then great products, and they've earned the business of many. But now that world is defined. And as long as they're good stewards, things should be fine. But we've seen like with the likes of MySpace, right? Like one of the one of the key destinations that people used to go to. But then a new thing showed up. And the, the funny thing, it doesn't have to be a replica. I think a lot of people are, are looking for replicas. Like when TikTok came out, and for me, it looked like none of the other social networks. Mm -hmm. Right? It felt like a whole different thing. And people moved over. Advertisers moved over. And that put pressure on the incumbents. Like, wow, what is this new thing? We had no idea that people would really enjoy uh, short form videos in this way. Well, there you go. And a lot of times, you may realize this too late, especially if you're in the case of someone like a, like a meta or formerly known as Facebook. <laughs> They had a product in this category, like right? Like they didn't they have a tool like Vine, something very similar to this already. Yeah, it just is in the wrong place at the wrong time. So I think it's just one of these things where you have to pay attention. And in the case of infrastructure, that community means a lot. So if you're an investor in this space, the community means a ton and you should give a lot of weight to the strength of that community because it definitely leads to future or potential customers. Hmm. So, it sounds like HashiCorp's in a good position, but monitoring that community is absolutely critical. Yeah. And one thing we didn't touch on, there were companies in all of these spaces before HashiCorp showed up. And a lot of those companies are still around. They still have very large deals with their customers. And those customers are like, wow, what's this vault thing? 
Like, why am I using this thing that may not be as easy to use? Does this vault thing have enough momentum behind it? Okay, HashiCorp is no longer a small startup. They're a public traded company. Maybe now it's safe to take a look, right? There's a saying, no one ever got fired from buying something from IBM Mm. because of the stability of that organization, because of your peer companies who've bought solutions from them and had a great experience over time. And so, as time goes on, I think that becomes truer and truer for HashiCorp, right? They keep building up those reputation points. Their products keep getting better and people keep wanting to use them. And so I think all of that counts. Hmm. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. I've learned so much and I'm so grateful for you to come on. Awesome. Thanks for having me.